Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Suhaib Sultan. Suhaib is currently the Muslim chaplain at Princeton University. He's also the author of Quran for Dummies, as well as an annotated commentary and selection of verses of the Quran and sayings of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. I was fortunate enough to meet Suhaib my second year at Princeton when I was a graduate student doing my PhD. That's when he started uh, his chaplaincy there. Uh, Suhaib has been a tremendous force at Princeton University in bringing the Muslim community together, not just at the university, but also in the surrounding area. He's also transformed the concept of Muslim chaplaincy in American universities. He's left a tremendous mark. Uh, This is a a wonderful person. You definitely want to hear the entirety of this conversation. I do want to warn you that towards the end of the conversation, we get a little bit personal and we talk about some of Suhaib's health challenges. I don't want to spoil it for you, but I do want to say, if you're watching this and you watch the whole thing, please pause and say a prayer for our good friend, Suhaib Sultan. Inshallah, Allah give him great uh, health, inshallah, and long life. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with none other than Suhaib Sultan. Suhaib, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Greetings of peace and blessings to everyone. Wa alaikum salam. It's so good to, to hear you and, and see you. Uh, so I thought the, the best place to begin is how we first met, which was at Princeton. Yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, I had already finished my first uh, year of graduate school or I was in, you know, about wrapping up. Uh, and then all of a sudden I hear, you know, there's a Muslim chaplain. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, I'm like, okay, let me go visit this Muslim chaplain. And that's sort of where our relationship began. So right. I thought that maybe what we could begin with is helping people understand what exactly is a chaplain, what is the chaplaincy, and what is it that you do all day? Yeah, that's right. It's a good, it's a good place to begin. And um, I remember being very excited to meet you and other, um, you know, talented graduate students at Princeton and it gave me confidence that I wouldn't be all by myself fishing in this large ocean of chaplaincy and I would have resources to draw upon. Because I think that's what the heart of chaplaincy is about. The heart of chaplaincy is about, you know, trying to um, get the community to work together and to try to bring the resources and the talents and the energy of the community to, 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 together uh, to build, you know, a vibrant um, and positive and happy Uh, community. Um, And so my particular role as a chaplain is um, a fewfold. Um, You know, one is to organize what we would call, you know, ministry, you know, and what we mean by ministry is the religious, um, formal, uh, ritual life of the community, right? 
And so uh, the easiest example of that is the weekly Friday prayer, right? Um, but the, the chaplain doesn't have to give the Friday prayer every week. Maybe they never have to give the Friday prayer. Maybe there's something about the Muslim chaplain that doesn't even qualify them to uh, give the Friday prayers on a regular basis. But what they should be involved in is creating the culture uh, and creating uh, the apparatus uh, by which uh, really meaningful um, sermons are delivered to the community. Um, and so if you remember, uh, the many times we asked you to give a sermon, oftentimes we would sit down and talk you know, about what's happening in the community, getting a pulse of what the students are experiencing, maybe what's happening on the socio-political uh, scene, um, right? So to, 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 to kind of be involved in a conversation about how best to organize uh, the ritual life of the Muslim community. Um, and then of course you have, you know, in Ramadan, a lot of activities, Eid, um, if somebody gets married, if somebody were to pass away, all of these things. But doing it from the perspective of what is at the heart of chaplaincy, which is this idea of compassionate care, right? Rahma. You know, if, if someone were to say, what is the is the is the is the heart of, of Islamic chaplaincy, it's Rahma. You know, and one can argue that this is at the heart of the Islamic ethos altogether. Uh, but really chaplaincy is about trying to bring that rahma, trying to bring that 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 compassion and that mercy of God uh, that is spoken of so uh, beautifully in the Quran and in the Islamic tradition and Islamic spirituality uh, to the lives of the people. Um, and so included in that is also, um, you know, counseling, right? And so a lot of what the chaplain does is one-on-one -on -one sitting down with uh, community members, students, uh, depending on who, you know, which demographic you're, you're serving, and just having a conversation about life, about joy, about sadness, about how to make meaning of failure, how to make meaning of um, uh, of, of tragedy, um, but also how to celebrate, uh, you know, uh, the blessings of God in the most appropriate way, right? Mm. Um, how to think about deep philosophical questions, but not just through the mind, but also through the qalb, also through the heart, right? So there's this idea that chaplaincy is about marrying the mind and the heart together, you know, in this really beautiful way. Um, and part of that is sometimes counseling is not enough. We have to offer teachings to the wider community. So teaching is really important um, mm. and putting on classes and uh, organizing uh, educational seminars uh, that allow people to dive deeper into their faith tradition. So many young people, for example, that I meet, their Islamic education began and ended with Sunday school. And when you talk to them about Islamic literacy and Islamic education, they're really turned off by that idea because they think it's just gonna be a repeat of Sunday school. And it takes a lot to convince them that no, well, we, we might actually have something much deeper to offer here. You know, maybe something much more meaningful, maybe something much more impactful. Um, and um, oftentimes that teaching happens most effectively across interfaith communities. Uh, because at this stage of their life, uh, young adults, I'm talking about a college campus, are really interested in knowing what their peers think about the similar life issues that they're thinking about. So when you put them in conversation with other faith communities, it allows them to, to think much deeper about, you know, the meaning of life, um, the, the idea of uh, the hereafter, uh, the idea of, um, you know, uh, um, uh, there being uh, the notion of one God or multiple gods, like these are all like really vibrant conversations that other faith communities are having. 
Um, so oftentimes that teaching will look like an interfaith activity, you mm. know, as well. Uh, so working with other chaplains uh, to uh, create a vibrant, uh, you know, religious life on uh, wherever you are as part of chaplaincy as well. So people might not know, but uh, of, of course, Jewish students and Catholic students, they have a very robust chaplaincy uh, support system on campus and off campus, whether it's the, through the Newman Center for the Catholic students, the Hillel Centers for the Jewish students. So uh, it goes without saying that, of course, uh, not, without knowing the details, I, I know that you would be, you know, underfunded, under undergunned, you know, when you're at these interfaith things. So could you speak a little bit to that? Because I want people to really understand what that's like. I mean, you know, these are institutions that, that are decades and decades old. So when that's you're right. talking about interfaith work, it's all of that. And then it's you, you know, you, <laughs> you, you coming to the table and, and having to like bear all of this responsibility. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I think it's really important to understand that if you look at any previous uh, uh, minority faith community in this country that struggled, right? And that really went through what we would nowadays call anti-Muslim bias or Islamophobia in their own versions, like anti-Semitism, you know, or uh, anti-Catholic uh, sentiments. Uh, one of the things that they uh, picked up on early was the importance of establishing, uh, you know, their own really vibrant institutions on college campuses because they knew that uh, they, the, the, the college campuses are the places where the thought leaders will emerge from, right? Um, and they knew that, uh, you know, if someone were, able, were, were to go to college and say, you know, my roommate uh, was this brilliant Jewish guy who was a mathematician uh, and uh, a devout Jew, uh, and there's no way what you're saying about Jews is true, because I've had these personal encounters and personal experiences at Harvard and Princeton and Columbia and Rutgers, um, you know, with these uh, Jewish students, then that would change the landscape of how thought leaders emerging out of these college campuses would form policies around, uh, you know, uh, the freedom of religion and uh, the dignity of faith communities in America. Um, and there was also this idea that uh, the students themselves who are going to these college campuses, if they were not supported in their faith endeavors, and they were all uh, given over to, uh, you know, uh, a, a secular um, uh, idea, uh, philosophy of education without any input of their religious rabbis and their uh, priests and their nuns, uh, then they would uh, end up coming out of the college experience totally lost, you know, about their faith, mm. right? Um, so all of these things are things that, that these communities identified. And for this reason, you have, as you were saying, the Halal centers and the Newman centers all across America functioning really vibrantly. And, um, you know, the national organizations pouring money into, uh, into these, um, into these um, uh, organizations. Uh, because they understood that the future of Jews in America and the futures of the future of Catholics in America, as two examples of communities who went before us, um, depended very much on how successfully they built, you know, these communities on college campuses. So now, uh, you know, I think the Muslims have an opportunity to learn from all of this, right? Um, and you're absolutely right about the fact that 
we have yet to kind of catch up, you know. So, um, you know, at Princeton, alhamdulillah, you know, all blessings are, are due to God. Uh, you know, over the years, we've been able to, uh, you know, set up much more of a strong funding structure where we're able to do more and more programming. Uh, and now we have a, you know, part-time assistant and things like that. But we're way behind the curve, you know, mm. and part of it is because the larger Muslim community has not quite caught up to uh, understand, you know, the importance of investing uh, in, uh, you know, the Muslim college scene. But it's very ironic because if you think about it, so much, so many of the uh, masajids, right, in America emerge out of the MSA scene, right? Mm. It's like a group of young Muslims who established the Muslim Student Association and uh, eventually outgrow it, right? And then say, well, you know, we can't be hanging out on a college campus for the rest of our lives. Why don't we go build a mosque, you know, 10 miles down the road, mm. right? But then what that meant was a lot of the funding from the professional class going away from the, uh, you know, from the college campus communities and going to these mosques. Um, so I think that mosques uh, in particular have, you know, a special uh, responsibility to uh, recognize, uh, you know, their their birth mother, uh, you know, which are usually the MSAs uh, that uh, that that were born much earlier than them uh, down the road, um, you know, and so uh, there's a lot to be said about that. Now, in Princeton specifically, I know there's another dynamic that it, it might not necessarily be shared at other universities, which is one of the things that we're known for at Princeton is that we have a very vibrant, whether you call it Near Eastern studies, Oriental studies, Islamic studies, you know, department, one of the oldest in, in the nation. And for, you know, for better or for worse, it produces a lot of, of scholars. And I would say over the last maybe 10, 15 years, a lot of Muslim graduate students like myself would come into to these programs. And, you know, you would think that a lot of these people would be allies you know, for the kind of work that you're doing. But from my perspective, at least when I was there, I, the opposite seemed to be the case that there are, they might be almost like anti, you know, what you're doing. Either they don't consider you serious enough because, you know, they're like the ivory, the ivory tower scholar, or believe it or not, a lot of these people are actually secular. Yeah, they're interested in the academic study of Islam, but they're really secular in their practice. I mean, without having to get into names and detail, I, I, this is not the point. Yeah. But it is a it is a dynamic that that I definitely do not envy that you had to navigate. Uh, and I would like to learn from you. You know, how how did you and how do you continually deal with that element, whether they be from professors or from students? Yeah, I mean, you know, it you know, it, it kind of is what it is. And you know, when I came to Princeton, I didn't have any. You know misnomers about it, um, even though I knew that you know Princeton University has one of the most historic uh, Near Eastern Studies departments. I didn't uh, expect it to be a natural ally to most of the work that I wanted to do, uh, because I knew that the approach of the Near Eastern Studies department is about you know dehistoricizing basically the Islamic tradition, uh, which is what academics do. This is what intellectuals do, um, and you know that's not my mission, right? My mission is not to go into the Muslim community. And to be like, all right, let's dehistoricize this entire thing. Everything you were ever taught about Islam, like question it. <laughs> um, you know, but my, you know, my, uh, you know, my mission was quite different, which is that let's build upon the strengths of the foundations of faith that you have, right? Uh, 
Um, and what does it mean to be a faithful Muslim in the 21st century? Uh, what does it mean to interpret these really rich uh, texts like the Quran and the Hadith in the modern context, right? Um, you know, if you find something objectionable, uh, one approach could be the academic intellectual approach of just dehistoricizing and delegitimizing. Uh, but there could be other approaches as well. And what are those approaches? You know, mm. and trying to introduce those approaches which are often missing from the academic discourse, you know. Um, and so, um, you know, every now and then I would land upon, uh, you know, a student, uh, a graduate student who had, you know, that sort of approach. Uh, and I was able to draw them into the program and have them teach alongside, like yourself and others. Um, but for the most part, this was not my expectation going into my encounter uh, with uh, either professors, definitely not professors, and definitely not, uh, and, and usually not students, uh, because I understood that, you know, there's a particular crop, you know, uh, of people, um, you know, and a particular culture uh, that has been formed over the course of not just years, but centuries, you know, um, and, uh, and, and, and my job was not going to go in there and, you know, uh, be like uh, the, um, uh, the David versus Goliath, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it was to really just, you know, um, accept that um, the way I see myself is um, an inheritor of the, the prophets, uh, an inheritor of the scholars, uh, an inheritor of, 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 of the righteous, uh, who throughout uh, the, the course of human civilization have always been asking the same question which is that how best in our age can we submit uh, to the best of God's teachings, you know, mm. and how can we uh, um, uh, cultivate not only expansive minds, but also these expansive hearts, you know, that are able to, um, uh, that are able to critique uh, the, uh, the socioeconomic political poisons of our time and emerge with uh, better answers um, that are that that come out of you know these rich religious traditions but are not exclusive to them either you know mm. um, and so I always saw that to be my project and I would I to this day I always push students you know I, I say don't just accept everything you learn you know critique it you know and and marry your religious discourse into it you know, um, uh, and, 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 and this is why Islamic education and Islamic knowledge is so important, because if you don't know what your religion has to say about all of these different issues, uh, you're just going to walk away thinking that the secular West has, you know, an advance on everything yeah. uh, without knowing that, you know, the, the, the traditionalists and the ancients um, and those who people have nowadays dismissed as being uh, you know, uh, of the past, uh, had a lot of things right, you know, uh, and could teach us a lot about, you know, about, about the world that we're living in. So what are the, like, if you had to summarize like two or three top themes that you've noticed with Muslim students that are coming into the university based on your work, I, I have a, a hunch of what they might be, but what, what are you seeing? I mean, other than, you know, the interfaith and the, uh, you know, establishing the, the liturgical, you know, functions, 
you're actually dealing with students and I'm sure students have problems. They've confided in you, they have issues. Uh, you know, Princeton is not an easy place to be academically. It's very, very tough. It, it attracts a certain type of person. Uh, but what are you seeing? And I think I want people to, to listen to this, whether they be students or parents, I want people to listen to these type of challenges. If you had to like summarize the top three, what would you say they are? Yeah, I would say, so one is, um, you know, philosophical, right? Um, you know, when you uh, go to uh, Princeton University and you take a class, uh, whether in the social sciences or in the material sciences, uh, you're often going to be uh, challenged in your faith, right? Mm. Like I remember there was a student who came to me and he, his first day of class, you know, in evolutionary biology, the professor said, you know, if you're a believer, this class is not for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> welcome. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Marhaba. <laughs> um, so, what do you what do you do with that, right? Yeah. Now, now, yeah. now, this student, if he's a if he's a person of serious faith and he's a serious scientist, you know, we're going to have to sit down and and seriously think this statement through, yeah. right? Um, because either he emerges out of this class, according to his professor, as a serious scientist or as a, a serious, uh, uh, you know, uh, faithful person, but he can't be both. Yeah. Um, you know, and so um, that's just an example, but it happens in the social sciences as well. Like there's students who will come to me and they will say, you know, today the professor talked about how the entire notion of the prophet Muhammad is an entire myth, right? <laughs> like that he didn't even exist. Like that this is like all, you know, like uh, made up in, in the books of history. Mm, mm. Um, and, you know, and, and they're like, uh, and, they're, and they're confused by this. They're like, we've never heard of an argument like this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, sitting down with people and really offering them alternative, you know, intellectual approaches, um, you know, is, you know, I think at the heart of like education chaplaincy, mm. right? And this is where, you know, the graduate students that you were talking about earlier who do, many of them do, even if they're not completely like, you know, um, you know, sold by uh, you know, uh, the tradition or whatever you want to call it, which, you know, is totally fair. I mean, I think, you know, um, everyone has that right to have a lot of skepticism about, you know, the tradition as well. Um, but still, there's a lot of students who are also not totally sold by, you know, these sort of uh, baloney, you know, secular arguments as well, that you can be, uh, you know, a true scientist or that you can be uh, or, or that you have to believe that the Prophet Muhammad is a myth or something like that, you know. Mm. And so those people can really come and help, you know, kind of, you know, um, um, uh, allow these students to process what they're thinking, mm. you know. Um, and I, as the chaplain, had a lot of, I had to do a lot of growth in this area. I had to do a lot of research myself. I had to do mm. a lot of, you know, study myself because these are not arguments that, you know, I grew up with either, right? These are things that I learned over yeah. the course of time as well. Actually, just to pause for a second, uh, you reminded me uh, when I when I developed this platform, making sense of Islam. The first course I put on the platform is a is a course called the Muslim Mind. Exactly for that reason. So yeah. offline, when we're done with this conversation, I'd like to send you uh, some information. I'll just uh, WhatsApp it to you. Uh, that might actually might come in handy. Uh, because what you just said is the same problem I find in my home community when I'm dealing with younger people, particularly. They haven't gone off to college or some have and they're coming back to visit on the holidays. 
it's you know this threat of of atheism or or materialism or modernism and and unable to reconcile the world around them the world that they're living in with their faith um so you just reminded me of that so i'm going to share that yeah. with you but what uh, what what are do you have like another one or two themes that you yeah. have yeah the other themes i would say are more um you know uh socio-cultural um gaps uh that exist between in, that often exists between students and their parents, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes there'll be kind of like a generational misunderstanding and, um, you know, it's not dealt with in the healthiest of ways. Oftentimes, you know, the, the conversation looks more like if you don't, if you don't do what we say, we're going to cut off your funding, you know, to go mm -hmm. to college, you know, mm -hmm. rather than like, let's sit down and uh, and 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 let me really hear you out as to why you don't want to become a doctor, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, like you, you know, come to Princeton uh, and all of a sudden you want to start like study poetry and your parents. Yeah, are like, exactly. Like we're, we're not sending, paying for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're not paying for you to study sociology or poetry or yeah. you know English literature or something like that. You know. Um, uh, similarly, I think that you know there's this notion of uh, emerging adulthood, right? Mm that you know when you when you go off to college you're expected to become more and more independent right um, and so what does it mean to make your own decisions about who you want to marry and what uh, going back to religion what philosophical thread within islam you want to follow there's like people who suddenly like become like a maliki or you know <laughs> having grown up in a hanafi home they like go back home and they're like praying with their hands down and like their parents are like what, what the heck happened to you, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you send you away for a semester and you're like a totally new person, you know? Um, <clears throat> you know, so uh, helping students navigate really difficult conversations with their parents as they are changing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and trying to, uh, you know, help them figure out how to have healthy conversations as opposed to like these, you know, um, non-negotiable conversations, you know? When I was there the first year before you came, one of the things that struck me is the uh, um, the great number of Shia students at Princeton. So uh, coming from an MSA background, there were always Shias, but they were always a minority. But when I was at Princeton, I would say it was almost like 50-50. Has that still remained the case where there's a almost an even number of Sunni and Shia students, or that was just sort of my year that I was there? The, the you know, it, it, it kind of uh, ebbs and flows. It ebbs and flows. But, um, but undoubtedly, uh, you know, Princeton is a place where, um, you know, that has uh, witnessed um, a lot of Shia students, a lot of Shia graduates. Um, and, you know, we're a really, really diverse community. Very, uh, yeah, very. You know, very diverse. And I, I, I saw that you know, that, um, that uh, the conversation between Sunnis and Shias was quite, actually quite extraordinary, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, people were, were really into it. You know, people were really into it. And to this day, they're still really into it, you know. So it's not a source of problem. It's like a source of strength for the community. It's a source of strength, yeah. Okay, mashallah, good. we've made it into a source of strength. We've, we've really, you know, um, made it a point to, um, you know, use it as an opportunity for education and conversation. Now, I know from our, our private conversations over the years uh, that you have been challenged many, many times with, I'll just use the word ridiculous, you know, predicaments. Uh, we don't have to get into the details, whether it be from, you know, the admin, the administration and, you know, the trustee level, whether it be from like a weird element in the community or whatever. Uh, and 
every time you've shared those with me, I got upset <laughs> for you. But, you know, mashallah, you're infinitely more diplomatic than me. And, you know, every year I, I look online and, you know, you guys have this Maulid program, which, you know, astaghfirullah, we all like envy now. Like, you know, I want to be part of this, this Maulid program where when I was there, you know, we had iftar in like a little room, like in the basement of like some building. Uh, so I say all of this because it seems to me that one of your skill sets uh, is, is this diplomacy and the ability to manage uh, through these controversies. I think one of the skills or one of the things is you reach out. I know you've reached out to me, you've reached out to other people. If you want, like, as, like what does the Sharia actually say about, you know, one, two, three? And so I, I think that your counsel, you're reaching out for counsel, but what are the other skill sets that you do? Because man, that's some tough stuff you've been in. Uh, yeah. Some really difficult, you know, predicaments. How how do you navigate? Not just navigate for your own self, but continue to build. You know, to to keep your eye on your own mission. Right, right. No, it's a very good question. Um, and you know, I think I credit a lot of it to, uh, you know, the education around community organizing uh, that I got um, from uh, the best of teachers. Um, you know, who kind of taught me about this idea of Muslim pluralism in a, in, in a way that's a bit different from the way that we often see it in, in, in a lot of our communities, which is that, you know, we recognize there's this challenge. We recognize that there's this problem, which is that Muslims are really, really diverse in their orientations, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so for example, there's the uh, very pro uh, you know, uh, molid Muslims, right? Like, you know, every week they want to do a molid and all they want to do is a molid, no. um, you know, and for them, that's like the heart of Islam is like doing a molid, right? And then there's like those who think that molid is like a total innovation that you shouldn't even like, you know, step foot into it, right? Hmm. Um, and so because of, you know, this is just one example, because of this kind of difference that you have uh, within the community, um, you know, there's, there's, there's either a minimalist approach that you can take toward pluralism or a maximalist approach that you can take, right? Mm -hmm. And the minimalist approach is that in order to um, uh, hurt the least amount of people's feelings, let's just do the bare minimum that we, that we agree upon. Mm -hmm. um, and if we step foot outside of that, we're entering into dangerous territory, right? Uh, and if we enter into dangerous territory, we're setting ourselves up for a clash of ideologies and, and, and things like that. Mm. But there's another approach. The, the other approach is to say, listen, you know, uh, throughout the course of Islamic uh, history, uh, these different um, traditions, these different celebrations, these different rituals um, have developed and they've given meaning to different segments of the Muslim community. And they've given comfort and they've given um, purpose. Um, and uh, regardless of what we do, they're not going to go away, right? Whether we agree with them or we don't agree with them on an, on an individual basis, they're not going to go away because they're too embedded in the story of what it means to be a Muslim, mm. right? Um, and so why not just recognize that not everyone has to come to everything, you know? Um, and why not just recognize that everything that has developed as part of the Muslim story uh, in the course of history has something meaningful to offer. Otherwise, it wouldn't have lasted this long for centuries. Sure. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, and so, um, therefore, 
Um, you know, we try to look at just about everything that Muslims uh, do. Uh, you know, historically in the uh, in the in uh, in the in the quote unquote Muslim world, um, that gives meaning and that gives uh, purpose and that gives enrichment to the spiritual and ethical life, and we say let's do it here too, because there'll be some Muslims who are going to get some benefit out of it, you know, and maybe there'll some and maybe there'll be some Muslims who are totally opposed to it, uh, who will be surprised to learn that they actually find this to be pretty interesting as well, you know. Um, and then there might be other Muslims who never heard of any such thing and they just want to try it out and see what it's like. And that's part of the educational experience. Um, and then there might be other Muslims who are totally opposed to it and they come to something like this and they're even more opposed to it. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. You know, it's all khair. You know, it's all good. But what we do is we create um, a place for conversations that are not happening in the, in the uh, department of... Um, in the department of, uh, of, of, of vagueness, you know, like yeah. theoretical conversations. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're putting on something practical, we're doing something, you experience it, and you have a conversation based on the experience, you know. Um, uh, you know, people say, oh, you know, I'm against Mawlid because at the Mawlid they put this chair, you know, for the Prophet and they say the Prophet's going to sit on this chair and we're waiting for the Prophet to come sit. And I say, okay, well, did we do that? You know, we put on a Mawlid. Did we have a grand big chair, sofa, you know, waiting for the prophet to come and say, we didn't do that. So is that an essential part of Molid or that's just something that happened that you saw that you're opposed to, you know, maybe there's- no, I mean, The ones that I attended, you know, uh, uh, fortunately with my family, uh, you know, they were highly, I think the year I came, it was Sayyid Hussein Nasr, who's my old professor, yeah. you know, someone we both respect highly. You know, it was, it was very educational and, and yeah. highly intellectual and, and spiritual right. at the same time. And, if I remember correctly, there were a lot of non-Muslims that were in, in attendance. It was sort of like, let's go to the Muslim cultural event that they're having, you know, exactly. and for us. So I thought, I mean, I think you've done a great job. And, and that's a wonderful answer because sometimes, and I've said this before in other conversations on the podcast, but sometimes it's very easy for somebody like me to, to, to become tribal. Hey, look, this person's not in my tribe, you know, they don't belong in my tent. And, and it's very, very easy to do that. It's so easy just to slip into that and then you lose the whole prophetic model because that's not what the right. prophet, I mean, that's obviously not what he was sent to do. He was sent, you know, to bring us all uh, together. So it's, it's a good reminder. I'm glad you, you phrased it that way. Uh, it's so easy. And I think it's the coward's way and the easy way to just become tribal and be like, oh, you know, that person's not, not with me. So, you know, kudos to you and, and for what you've done, mashallah, to, to, to the community. Mm -hmm. So just to, to bridge to a, another sort of minor topic before we, we get to a bigger topic. Uh, I, I do want to go back in time and ask you about, uh, you know, the, the, the Quran for Dummies book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so if people don't know you as the chaplain of Princeton, I'm sure they'll definitely know you uh, for that book. And, and I sort of wanted to understand from you the genesis behind that project and, and you know, how it came about and, and how you did it and accomplished it. And your thoughts that, you know, some of the, some of the only books that future ISIS fighters took with them on their journey to fight was the <laughs> Quran for Dunya. I never thought I would hear that in my life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Neither yeah, did I. So, so the, 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 the genesis of it is actually kind of interesting because, you know, when I was in college, I, I was um, someone who was um, committed to the profession of journalism. 
Um, mm. And uh, the way that I saw my life panning out before 9-11 happened uh, was that I saw myself traveling throughout the country, traveling throughout the world and telling the stories of the voiceless. Like that was kind of like my uh, notion of a, a purposeful life. Uh, anybody that's it. voiceless, just, just the, the, the disenfranchised. Yeah, disenfranchised, uh, you know, uh, victims of, of, of war, victims of poverty, you okay. know, people who just aren't given a voice usually. Um, and um, I, I, I picked up the, 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 the art of storytelling and mm. the joy of storytelling at a young age. I really enjoyed writing. I really enjoyed telling the stories of people. Um, and so this is something that I was really drawn to. And um, I went to Indiana University where they have a very famous school uh, called Ernie Pyle School of Journalism. Hmm. Um, and that was one of the main reasons I went there was because I wanted to be trained uh, there. And I had some excellent teachers, you know, who taught me to write well and so on. Um, and, um, and so that was kind of my, my, my notion of what a, a good life would, would, a purposeful life would look like after college. And I did everything in college to set myself up with the right internships and things like that to go into this profession in that manner. And then lo and behold, my senior year of college, 9-11 happens, right? Mm. Um, and I'm one of the leaders within the MSA. Um, and that entire senior year of college is a total blur um, <laughs> because very little of it is uh, you know, going to classes or doing anything that a senior in college would do. That's, that's an understatement, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You, 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 you remember what that period was like. And so every day we're, you know, we're being invited to speak at libraries and churches and synagogues and at, you know, government halls, even as like, you know, 21, 22, 23 year olds, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're being expected to draft statements uh, to the media and, you know, to put on interfaith uh, healing, uh, you know, <laughs> events and, you know, totally things that are that are beyond the, 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 the pale of what- No they, one prepared us for these things. Yeah, nobody prepared us. <laughs> no one told us how to do them. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's quite an, an amazing story actually to think about how, you know, such young people in their early twenties, uh, you know, were able uh, to take on such tasks, you know, and many mm. of us, I think, found our calling out of that as well. Um, I think that, that's certainly true for me. Um, and that experience really stuck with me because I started to really think deeply about how there was this big problem, this big gap in the Muslim community of where, um, you know, there weren't enough, um, you know, Muslim American born and raised, uh, you know, uh, religious leaders and thinkers who were not only speaking to the hearts and minds of young Muslims in this country, but also speaking in the language and in the culture of the people who live as our neighbors and as our coworkers and as our classmates in America. Um, and, um, and so I started thinking more and more deeply about that as I started visiting more and more of these churches and synagogues and libraries and people hmm. asking me some very profound and some very basic questions about Islam um, and realizing that we hadn't quite done our, our task, you know, beyond the African-American community, of course. You know, African American community is par excellence in this, you know, of having reached out way before it was it was cool to reach out and doing all these interfaith activities before that was even seen as something sure. you know legitimate to do and all of these things, you know, but the rest of the community was way behind 
you know. And even my introduction to 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 chaplaincy, I have to give a lot of credit to the African American community because the main form of religious leadership in the public square that Muslims um, that Muslims uh, um, you know uh, 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 really um, brought you know was through chaplaincy, mostly through the African American Muslim community, you know. Um, otherwise, uh, Muslim religious leadership has 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 largely been more private, more mosque, uh, and Muslim driven. You know, um, and so um, so 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 that question really you know turned a lot in my heart. Um, and as I went out in, in the world, uh, you know, moving to Chicago and trying my hand at you know a career in journalism and things like that, you know, realizing this stuff is really hard to get into the media and things of that nature. I was drawn more and more to the work of, you know, um, religious uh, education, religious activism, religious community organizing, um, and reaching out to, uh, you know, people of other faiths. Um, and somewhere along the line, uh, you know, the, the Wiley publishers, which are based in Indiana, uh, out of all the places. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Naples, Indiana, you know, mm. they were like, you know, we need to have a book out there that explains to non-Muslims what the Quran is all about. And they have the famous series, the Demi series. Yeah. You know, the Demi series is everything, you know, how to raise your dog for dummies and how to, <laughs> you know, everything for dummies, right? So they said, why don't we have a book called, you know, the Quran for dummies? Hmm. They found it really hard to find, and this goes to what we were just talking about. They found it really hard to find an author. Sure. You know? uh, there were very few Muslims who were like willing to sign themselves up because there was, there's this lack of confidence. How do we speak to you know, people beyond our own community, yeah. you know, and, and it's like a crisis of confidence almost, you know. Um, so when this project somehow landed at my feet through a combination of it first going to a professor that I used to work very closely with at Indiana University and then, you know, so on and so forth. Um, when the project kind of landed at my feet, I was also full of skepticism. Uh, but, you know, look, my, my, my teachers, my parents, uh, you know, many other people, they were like, you know, if you don't, if you don't take on this project, you know, who knows whose hands it's going to get into, you know, sure. maybe Steve Emerson or someone else, mm. uh, you know, will, <laughs> will end up writing this book, you know, so if it's landed in your hands, you've got to make something out of this, you know, and I, and I said, fair enough, you know, and so I took that almost entire year uh, to really, you know, do my research and to, you know, sit down and talk to a lot of, you know, scholars and thinkers and teachers and do a lot of reading, a lot of listening and um, and tried to put this book together. And uh, by no means uh, will I say that it's, you know, the best book or anything like that. But I think it was a good effort, especially for that time. Uh, there were very, very few books in the in the public square uh, that exposed um, uh, people to uh, mainstream Muslim thought, you know, about the Quran. Um, so uh, I am proud of that achievement, you know. Alhamdulillah. Do you still like give it out? Not really. I've, I don't think I ever, you know, drew that much in confidence about the book. I, I think it goes to the problem of the crisis of confidence. But, you know, I don't think I ever uh, was, you know, that exceptionally proud of the work uh, to like be handing it out. It was more like, you know, people just kept buying it. And, they, and to this day, they email me and they say, you know, I've read your book and I have some questions. And, you know, like almost on a weekly basis, I entertain questions from people who are, who are reading the book, you know. Interesting. So I've never really had to do like self-promotion. So <clears throat> I want to respect your time. I, I, so I want to sort of, as we round the, the next curve, you know, towards the end, 
uh, something a little bit more personal. One of my uh, daily routines uh, is that I pray a, a Geneza, absent Geneza prayer every night. Mm. Uh, you know, on anyone who, who's died, uh, any Muslim who's died, no one prayed over them. And then the last, you know, takbir, for a moment, I, I visualize my own death, you know, my own mortality. And for me, that's been a, a practice, you know, alhamdulillah, for almost a decade now. And it, it's, it's been very transformative for me for two reasons. Number one, uh, it, nothing wakes you up like the fact that you're remembering that you're going to die. And it kind of shakes out off all of the excess non-essential stuff, uh, helps you focus. And number two, it, it's a great form of stress release for me. Uh, I do a lot of stressful work uh, or I tend to get stressed out for my work. So when I do that before I sleep, typically, I kind of like, okay, well, I mean, this might be it, right? I might sleep and not wake up. So I'm not gonna, I don't wanna go to sleep worried about this email or that phone call. Uh, and then recently, I even made a video about it, but I, I, I started wearing this ring. This, this is the ring that Sayyidina Omar used to wear. And it says, uh, that death is enough uh, of a reminder. Mm. So the remembrance of death has been a very important part of my life. Uh, and I know that a little over a year ago, uh, you were diagnosed uh, with cancer. Uh, you know, we were heartbroken. Uh, I read mm -hmm. that article that you wrote on Medium. Uh, you know, I tried to reach out to you, but I realized, you know, everyone was probably, so I did want to, you know, I wanted to give you your space. So, I mean, it is personal. I guess I kind of queued it up. So, I, I, I mean, we're just in the personal space now, but I really would love to hear from you what that, what that meant. I mean, you, you put it so beautifully in the article, it's hard for me to, to restate it, you know, what that means for you, you know, having to live with this diagnosis, you know, inshallah, we pray for your health and, and your recovery mm -hmm. and, and everything. But it's been a roller coaster for you health wise, I know for the last year specifically, and your family and your community, what, what has that been like and, and help bring that to us and, and to the people that are watching and listening, because I think we all need this reminder. Yeah, you know, um, uh, well, thank you for bringing it up. Um, you know, it is um, you know, uh, at once both personal and yet um, very communal, uh, you know, what I'm going through because, um, you know, my role in the community is, uh, you know, to be there for people um, and, um, you know, to be this shepherd. Um, and uh, now as, as, as far as we can tell, um, you know, the prognosis is that the shepherd is uh, looking to uh, the end of his life, you know. And uh, we, you know, I don't say this out of any sort of skepticism uh, in God's mercy or in God's miracles, but I actually say this out of um, the fact that, um, you know, we as Muslims grow up in uh, an, an existential philosophist tradition, which is this idea that we take death to be inevitable. And we take death to not only be something that is inevitable, but we also take it to be something that's deeply meaningful and purposeful, right? And that life itself cannot have meaning without uh, an understanding that we're only here for a few temporary years. Mm. And that we're just here to plant a few seeds that hopefully we get to see their full fruition in a totally other afterlife. We're not actually working for this hayat dunya. We're not actually working entirely for this world. 
Hmm. You know, we understand that God has brought us into this world and has given us existence, and we're grateful for that. We understand that our purpose is to worship God. Our, uh, we understand that our role is to cultivate the earth, you know, for the sake of God, to infuse the earth with the attributes and the names of God, including our own hearts and our own character. Um, you know, but ultimately, we don't see uh, the, 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 the life of this world as being uh, the place where we see, uh, you know, our perfected mission. Hmm. You know, our perfected mission is something that we see for the hereafter, you know. And I think that that's um, a really important reminder, like the way you were describing, you know, in the sense that it relieves you of stress, you know. But it also, you know, reminds you that, um, you know, uh, um, that, uh, that, that if, you know, if you're expecting for all of your uh, life's works uh, to be shown before your eyes here in this world, you're always going to be very disappointed and disgruntled. You know, because a lot of the things you work for in this world, you're not going to see it with your own eyes. Um, and in reality, uh, there's this idea that you're only doing your little bit, you know, in this project of human civilization to move uh, the ship forward, you know. And then you're going to be given a totally different vantage point that transcends the earthly realm in which you see things from the perspective of the angels and you see things from the perspectives the uh, perspective of the unseen that totally you know boggles your mind and you even start to realize like some of the limitations of the work that you were doing in this world like the story of Moses and Khidr in uh, the Quran you know where like Moses is so confident about his legal rulings you know yeah. until he's told about the reality behind the reality <laughs> yeah yeah you know um, and so, um, you know, death is actually an opportunity for us to transcend this very um, temp temporal and very um, uh, short-visioned uh, earthly life uh, and to be able to see things about the world from a totally different perspective. And in that way, you know, death is an it's, it's, it's a gift for the believer, you know. Uh, to be able to to uh, to see things, uh, you know, from a much wider uh, perspective, um, and I think that as we're living and as we're doing our work, it's important for us to know that even though we don't always know what's going on from the perspective of the other dimension, to know that there are these other dimensions at work. So to not become overly joyous when things happen in accordance with our wishes, and to not become overly depressed when things don't happen in accordance with our wishes, you know? So, so hey, you're, as you're speaking, I mean, it's so hard on me to hear you say that, but uh, I'm so happy uh, of your attitude. You remind me of that hadith, the hadith of the fasila that the, the Prophet, he said, if you know the hour is upon you and there's a seed in your hand, you know, plant the seed. Yes, and it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me that your reaction to this uh, diagnosis or prognosis is well okay well i'm just going to continue doing what i'm doing is that correct is, is that that's a certain that's it. so you know man i think a lot of us want to be there in other words not we want to be how how what is it that makes you so confident in in what you're doing 
that even something as massive as your own mortality that you're facing doesn't phase you from continuing what you're doing. Yeah. Can you just articulate that for us? You know, what's your feeling on the inside? And like, no, this well doesn't make a difference because I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so grateful. I say this often. I'm so grateful that in Islam, you know, I, 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 I believe that we're, giving, we're given a teacher in the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, who teaches us not only how to live, but also how to die. And what I mean by that is that in the final moments and hours of the Prophet's life, you know, he had total contentment. He had total ridha. You know, even though he was sent for an extraordinary mission, you know, if if there's someone who 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 we cannot live without, it's 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 a prophet, right? Like you you and I are like nobodies, right? <laughs> you know, compared to the prophets. So when people say, no, you can't go, well. You know, if the prophets went, then you know who are I, who? Who am I not to go, right? Um, so if there's somebody who we still need around, it's it's the prophet. Mm -hmm. But the prophet also had a time, you know, at a relatively young age in his mid 60s, right? And he left. That was it. And when the angel said, "Your Lord gives you a choice. Do you want to stay or do you want to go back to your Lord?" He said, "I want to go back to my God. I want to go back to Allah." You know, that was his DNR. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Necessity, right? Because he understood that, you know, uh, you have to have contentment with the time that God has given you in this life. And, you know, it's not going to be extended for even a moment beyond what God's decree is. So you mm. might as well just make full use of it um, and uh, be someone who is committed uh, to spending every single day of that life that God has decreed in doing something that is good, in doing something that is a uh, breath of fresh air, uh, that is doing something like planting a seed in the earth. Um, uh, uh, because it's all going to come to an end at some point anyways. So being content with that, being at peace with that, yeah. um, is what the prophet, peace be upon him, you know, really taught me and my family. I see this in my family. You know, I don't see my family as being people who are very scared of death. You know, um, we're like a very, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, we're, we're content about this idea. You know, even though, mashallah, God has given my parents a long life. We're not, we're not people who are, we're not a family. We're not a people who are, who are scared of death. Like we, we accept this reality, you know. Um, and, um, and so I think the way to, to get there is just to, except that this is how Allah has made the world. This is how Allah has made the universe. And there's a very real purpose in it because if we were to live forever, uh, we would act very, very tyrannically, you know? Mm. Uh, and, you know, in the Quran, you know, this is one of the temptations that Satan tries to give to Adam and Eve when he tempts them from the, from the heavenly state. You know, mm. he says, oh, your Lord only doesn't want you to eat from this tree so that you don't become immortals, you know? There's just something very tempting. There's something very, very tempting about wanting to be, to wanting to have immortality, you know? Uh, and in fact, I find, uh, I'm often surprised at how uh, uncomfortable religious people are with the notion of, of death. Uh, mm -hmm. Like ever since my diagnosis and my prognosis, like people have been coming from everywhere out of the woodworks 
to be like, if you just read this one dua, if you just read this one surah, and you read it like this, and you know you blow it in the nose and you blow it in the ears and all these things, you know, uh, you won't die. But I'm like, but doesn't the Quran say kullu nafsin maut? Like every soul is going to die. Like what does it mean, right? <laughs> like what does it mean that you're not going to like? And so I think that Muslims themselves are often very confused about like what is being, you know, what is what is decreed here because God has promised in the Quran that every single soul is going to be touched by death. Like you're not going to- That's sort of where I, I, I wanted to make this a practice for, for myself daily because I realized we talk it, we talk about it, you know, rationally, but it's, we, don't, we don't experience it. And it's, it's been a tremendous, uh, it, it helps put everything in my life in focus. The, the moment that I'm able to remember that, look, you know, this is it. Uh, you realize how much of the day, how many hours, minutes we waste on things that are just not essential, or how many times we get upset. Who cares? About, I mean, it's gone. You know, whatever that the person cut you off or the person was rude to you, it's, it's over. It's gone. You know? And you don't want to go to sleep. I don't want to go to sleep with that feeling. I don't want to hold on to. That. I just want to sort of like release. Uh, so yeah, man. Alhamdulillah. I, I mean, I'm 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 so grateful for our friendship. Uh, I'm so grateful. Uh, you know, that you're a friend and, uh, you know, when I came to Princeton, I had no idea that you were going to show up at all. Mashallah. Uh, so, I mean, I was, you know, completely, utterly surprised and, and so happy. I only wish I could have stayed longer, but I think my, my wife would have killed me if, you know, we prolonged what was already a very long journey. Uh, and, you know, your friendship has meant a lot to me and, and, you know, all the times we've interacted, they've meant a lot to me. And I'm one of the people that you have touched and me and my family and we're, we're uh, in your debt for what you did at, you know, what you did and continue to do at Princeton to, to mm -hmm. revitalize that community. So thank you, you know, Jazakallah kulli khair for all of that and for spending this time with me uh, this afternoon. Uh, usually I like to ask guests uh, to leave us with a thought, but what I was thinking is what I would like from you is what would your ask be of me? Uh, you know, somebody that is, was, and is sort of kind of connected to the Princeton community. You know, how can we help you and continue the work that you're doing? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, this was a really fun hour to spend with you. And um, I'm really grateful for our friendship as well. Um, and uh, for everything that you and your family have given to Princeton Muslim life. And, um, you know, uh, I would ask that you, um, as an alum, uh, see this as your, as one of your communities, you know, and that you um, stay involved uh, and that you uh, make it a point to uh, make sure that whoever comes after me uh, is someone that uh, uh, you introduce yourself to and um, ask, you know, how can I be helpful? Um, and um, that it's a that 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 this be a community that you don't just say, I went there, um, I saw things, I benefited, but rather you say that I went there, I saw things, I benefited, and I want to now give back, you know, um, and whether that's uh, you know opening up some of my classes to students, uh, you know, um, uh, um, you know, or uh, creating opportunities for conversation. 
you know, all these extraordinary talents that you, Tarek, you know, bring to the community uh, would be really, you know, would be really important. Even during my lifetime, you know, uh, I say this, uh, that, you know, we should work on that, you know. Inshallah. Well, that's a very big to-do list uh, that I'm gladly uh, accept and, and will look forward to executing. And right when we finish, uh, I will send you some information about the stuff I told you about. And, uh, you know, let's keep the conversation going, you know, pray for your, your health and, mm-hmm. and, and a long full life, inshallah. I hope that this is not the first time we have a, a recorded conversation. Uh, and, uh, you know, pray for your, your, yourself and your family, inshallah. But thank you so, mm-hmm. so much for spending this time. I really do appreciate, I know you're busy. Thank you. Uh, and I do really appreciate you taking the time out to have this conversation. Alhamdulillah. Be well and give my salam to your family. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up. (laughs) 